Chapter Two of the Hidden Hand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget. The Hidden Hand by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter Two. The Masks. What are these, so withered and so wild in their attire, that look not like the inhabitants of earth, and yet are on it? Macbeth. To the devil's punch bowl was the order given by Old Hurricane as he followed the minister into the carriage. And now, sir, he continued, addressing his companion, I think you had better repeat that part of the church litany that prays to be delivered from battle, murder, and sudden death. For if we should be so lucky as to escape Black Donald and his gang, we shall have at least an equal chance of being upset in the darkness of these dreadful mountains. A pair of saddle mules would have been a safer conveyance, certainly, said the minister. Old Hurricane knew that, but though a great sensualist, he was a brave man, and so he had rather risk his life in a close carriage than suffer cold upon a sure-footed mule's back. Only by previous knowledge of the route could any one have told the way the carriage went. Old Hurricane and the minister both knew that they drove, lumbering over the rough road leading by serpentine windings down that rugged fall of ground to the river's bank and that then, turning to the left by a short bend, they passed in behind that range of horseshoe rocks that sheltered Hurricane Hall, thus, as it were, doubling their own road. Beneath that range of rocks, and between it and another range, there was an awful abyss or chasm of cleft, torn, and jagged rocks opening, as it were, from the bowels of the earth, in the shape of a mammoth bowl, in the bottom of which, almost invisible from its great depth, seethed and boiled a mass of dark water of what seemed to be a lost river or subterranean spring. This terrific phenomenon was called the Devil's Punch Bowl. Not far from the brink of this awful abyss, and close behind the horseshoe range of rocks, stood a humble log cabin, occupied by an old free negress, who picked up a scanty living by telling fortunes and showing the way to the punch bowl. Her cabin went by the name of the Witch's Hut, or Old Hat's Cabin. A short distance from Hat's Cabin, the road became impassable, and the travellers got out, and, preceded by the coachman bearing the lantern, struggled along on foot through the drifted snow, and against the buffeting wind and sleet to where a faint light guided them to the house. The pastor knocked. The door was immediately opened by a negro, whose sex from the strange anomalous costume it was difficult to guess. The tall form was rigged out first in a long red cloth petticoat, above which was buttoned a blue cloth surtout. A man's old black beaver hat sat upon the strange head, and completed this odd attire. "'Well, Hat, how is your patient?' inquired the pastor, as he entered preceding the magistrate. "'You will see, sir,' replied the old woman. The two visitors looked around the dimly lighted, miserable room, and one corner of which stood a low bed upon which lay extended the form of an old, feeble, and gray-haired woman. "'How are you, my poor soul, and what can I do for you now I am here?' inquired old Hurricane, who, in the actual presence of suffering, was not utterly without pity. "'You are a magistrate?' inquired the dying woman. "'Yes, my poor soul.' "'And qualified to administer an oath and take your deposition,' said the minister. "'Will it be legal? Will it be evidence in a court of law?' asked the woman, lifting her dim eyes to the major." "'Certainly, my poor soul, certainly,' said the latter, who, by the way, would have said anything to soothe her. "'Send every one but yourself from the room.' "'What, my good soul, send the parson out in the storm? That will never do. Won't it be just as well to let him go up in the corner yonder?' "'No, you will repent it unless this communication is strictly private.' "'But, my good soul, if it is to be used in a court of law, that will be according to your own discretion.' 
"'My dear parson,' said Old Hurricane, going to the minister, "'would you be so good as to retire?' "'There is a fire in the woodshed, master,' said Hat, leading the way. "'Now, my good soul, now, you want first to be put upon your oath?' "'Yes, sir.' The old man drew from his great-coat pocket a miniature copy of the scriptures, and, with the usual formalities, administered the oath. "'Now, then, my good soul, begin. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you know. But first, your name.' "'Is it possible you don't know me, master?' "'Not I, in faith. "'For the love of heaven, look at me, and try to recollect me, sir. "'It is necessary someone in authority should be able to know me,' said the woman, "'raising her haggard eyes to the face of her visitor. "'The old man adjusted his spectacles, and gave her a scrutinizing look, "'exclaiming at intervals, "'Lord bless my soul! It is! It ain't! It must! It can't be! Granny Grewell! the 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 midwife that disappeared from here some twelve or thirteen years ago yes master i am nancy grewell the lady's nurse who vanished from sight so mysteriously some thirteen years ago replied the woman heaven help our hearts and for what crime was it you ran away come make a clean breast of it woman you have nothing to fear in doing so for you are past the arm of earthly law now i know it master and the best way to prepare to meet the divine judge is to make all the reparation that you can by a full confession. I know it, sir, if I had committed a crime, but I have committed no crime, neither did I run away. What? 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 What was it, then? Remember, witness, you were on your oath. I know that, sir, and I will tell the truth, but it must be in my own way. At this moment a violent blast of wind and hail roared down the mountainside and rattled against the walls, shaking the witch's hut, as if it would have shaken it about their ears. It was a proper overture to the tale that was about to be told. Conversation was impossible until the storm raved past, and was heard dying in the deep, reverberating echoes from the depths of the devil's punch-bowl. "'It is some thirteen years ago,' began Granny Grewell, "'upon just such a night of storm as this, "'that I was mounted on my old mule Molly, "'with my saddle-bags full of dried yarbs "'and stilled waters and sitch, "'and I allus carried when I was out tendin' the sick. "'I was on my way a-goin' to see a lady "'as I was sent for to tend. "'Well, master, I'm not shamed to say, "'as I never was afraid of man, beast, nor spirit, "'and never stopped at going out all hours of the night "'through the most lonesome roads.' "'if so be I was called upon to do so. "'Still I must say that just as me and Molly, my mule, "'got into that deep, thick, lonesome woods "'as stands round the old hidden house, "'in the hollow I did feel queerish, "'case it was the dead hour of the night, "'and it was said how strange things were seen and hearn, "'yes, and done, too, in that dark, deep, lonesome place. "'I seen how even my mule Molly felt queer, too, "'by the way she stuck up her ears, stiff as quills.' So, partly to keep up my own spirits, and partly to courage her, says I, Molly, says I, what are ye afeard on? Be a man, Molly. But Molly stepped out cautious, and pricked up her long ears all the same. Well, master, it was so dark, I couldn't see a yard past Molly's ears, and the path was so narrow, and the bushes so thick, we could hardly get along. And just as we came to the little creek, as they calls the spout, cause the water jumps and jets along it till it empties into the punch-bowl, and just as Molly was cautiously putting her forefoot into the water, out starts two men from the bushes, and seized poor Molly's bridle. "'Good heaven!' exclaimed Major Warfield. "'Well, master, before I could cry out, one of them willins seized me by the scruff of my neck, and, with his other hand upon my mouth, he says, "'Be silent, you old fool, or I'll blast your brains out.' 
And then, master, I saw for the first time that their faces were covered over with black crape. I couldn't a-screamed if they'd let me, for my breath was gone, and my senses were going along with it from the fear that was on me. "'Don't struggle. Come along quietly, and you shall not be hurt,' says the man, as had spoke before. "'Struggle! I couldn't a-struggled to a-saved my soul. I couldn't speak. I couldn't breathe. I liked to have a-dropped right off in Molly's back. One on em says, says he, "'Give her some brandy.' and t'other takes out a flask, and puts it to my lips, and says, says he, "'Here, drink this.' Well, master, as he had me still by the scruff of my neck, I couldn't do no other ways but open my mouth and drink it. And as soon as I took a swallow, my breath came back, and my speech. "'And, oh, gentlemen,' says I, "'if it's your money or your life, you mean, I hain't it about me.' "'Deed, clare to the Lord Almighty, I hain't. It's wrapped up in an old cotton glove, in a hole in the plastering, in the chimney corner at home.' "'And if he'll spare my life, you can go there and get it,' says I. "'You old blockhead,' says they. "'We want neither one nor t'other. "'Come along quietly, and you shall receive no harm. "'But at the first cry, or attempt to escape, this shall stop you.' "'And with that the willin held the mizzle of a pistol so nigh to my nose "'that I smelt brimstone, while t'other one bound a silk handkerchief round my eyes, "'and then took poor Molly's bridle, and led her along.' I couldn't see, in course, and I dasn't breathe for the fear of the pistol. But I said my prayers to myself all the time. Well, master, they led the mule on down the path, until we come to a place wide enough to turn, when they turned us round and led us back out in the wood, and then round and round, and up and down, and crossways and lengthways, as if they didn't want me to find where they were taking me. Well, sir, when they'd walked about in this fused way, leading of the mule about a mile— I knew we was in the woods again, the very same woods, and the very same path. I knowed by the feel of the place, and the sound of the bushes, as we hit up against them each side, and also by the rumbling of the spout, as it rumbled along toward the punch-bowl. We went down and down and down, and lower and lower and lower, until we got right down in the bottom of that hollow. Then we stopped. A gate was opened. I put up my hand to raise the handkerchief, and see where I was— but just at that minute I felt the mizzle of the pistol, like a ring of ice right agin my temple, and the willin growlin' into my ear. If you do! But I didn't. I dropped my hand down, as if I had been shot, and afore I had seen anything, either. So we went through the gate, and up a gravelly walk. I knew it by the crackling of the gravel under Molly's feet, and stopped at a horse-block, where one of them willins lifted me off. I put up my hand again. Do if you dare, says t'other one with the mizzle of the pistol at my head. I dropped my hand like lead, so they led me on a little way, and then up some steps. I counted them to myself as I went along. They were six. You see, master, I took all this pains to know the house again. Then they opened a door that opened in the middle. Then they went along a passage, and up more stairs. There was ten, and a turn, and then ten more. Then along another passage, and up another flight of stairs just like the first. Then along another passage, and up a third flight of stairs. They was alike. Well, sir, here we was at the top of the house. One of them willins opened a door on the left side, and t'other said, There, go in and do your duty, and pushed me through the door, and shut and locked it on me. Good gracious, sir, how scared I was. I slipped off the silk handkerchief, and, feared as I was, I didn't forget to put it in my bosom. Then I looked about me. Right afore me on the hearth was a little weeny taper burning, that showed I was in a great big garret with sloping walls. At one end, two deep dormer windows and a black walnut bureau standing between them. 
At t'other end, a great tester bedstead, with dark curtains. There was a dark carpet on the floor, and with all there were so many dark objects and so many shadows, and the little taper burned so dimly that I could hardly tell t'other from which, or keep from breaking my nose against things as I groped about. And what was I in this room for to do? I couldn't even form an ID. But presently my blood ran cold to hear a groan from behind the curtains, then another, and another, then a cry as of some child in mortal agony saying, For the love of heaven, save me! I ran to the bed and dropped the curtains, and liked to have fainted at what I saw. And what did you see? asked the magistrate. Master, behind those dark curtains I saw a young creature tossing about on the bed, flinging her hair and beautiful arms about, and tearing wildly at the fine lace that trimmed her nightdress. But, master, that wasn't what almost made me faint. It was that her right hand was sewed up in black crepe, and her whole face and head completely covered with black crepe, drawn down and fastened securely around her throat, leaving only a small slit at the lips and nose to breathe through. What? Take care, woman. Remember that you are upon your oath, said the magistrate. I know it, master, and as I hope to be forgiven, I am telling you the truth. Go on, then. Well, sir, she was a young creature, scarcely past childhood, if one might judge by her small size, and soft rosy skin. I asked her to let me take that black crepe from her face and head, but she threw up her hands and exclaimed, Oh, no, 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 for my life, no! Well, master, I hardly know how to tell you what followed, said the old woman, hesitating in embarrassment. Go right straight on like a car of the juggernaut, woman. Remember the whole truth. Well, master, in the next two hours there were twins born in that room, a boy and a girl. The boy was dead, the girl living. And all the time I heard the measured tramping of one of them willins up and down the passage outside of that room. Presently the step stopped, and there was a rap at the door. I went and listened, but did not open it. Is it all over? the voice asked. Before I could answer, a cry from the bed caused me to look round. There was the poor masked mother stretching out her white arms toward me in the most imploring way. I hastened back to her. Tell him no, no, she said. Have you got through? asked the man at the door, rapping impatiently. No, no, said I, as directed. He resumed his tramping up and down, and I went back to my patient. She beckoned me to come close, and whispered, Save my child, the living one, I mean. Hide her, oh, hide her from him. When he demands the babe, give him the poor little dead one. He cannot hurt that, and he will not know there was another. Oh, hide and save my child. Master, I was used to doing queer things, but this was a little the queerest. But if I was to conceal that second child in order to save it, it was necessary to stop its mouth, for it was squalling like a wild cat. So I took a vial of paragoric from my pocket, and give it a drop, and it went off to sleep like an angel. I wrapped it up warm, and lay it along with my shawl and bonnet in a dark corner. Just then the man rapped again. Come in, master, said I. No, bring me the babe, he said. I took up the dead infant. Its mother kissed its brow, and dropped tears upon its little cold face. And I carried it to the man outside. Is it asleep? the willin asked me. Yes, master, said I, as I put it, well wrapped up in his arms. Very sound asleep. So much the better, said the knave, walking away. I bolted the door and went back to my patient. With her free hand she seized mine and pressed to her lips, and then, holding up her left hand, pointed to the wedding ring upon her third finger. Draw it off and keep it, she said. Conceal the child under your shawl, and take her with you when you go. Save her, and your fortune shall be made. I declare, master, I hadn't time to think, before I heard one of them wretches rap at the door. Come, get ready to go, he said. 
She also beckoned me. I hastened to her. With eager whispers and imploring gestures, she prayed me to take her ring and save her child. But you, said I, who is to attend to you? I do not know or care. Save her. The rapping continued. I ran to the corner where I had left my things. I put on my bonnet, made a sort of sling around my neck of the silk handkerchief, opened the large part of it like a hammock, and laid the little sleeping babe there. Then I folded my big shawl round my breast, and nobody any the wiser. The rapping was very impatient. "'I am coming,' said I. "'Remember,' whispered the poor girl. "'I will,' said I, and went out and opened the door. There stood Tutherwillen, with his head covered with black crape. I dreamt of nothing but black-headed demons for six months afterward. "'Are you ready?' says he. "'Yes, your worship,' says I. "'Come along, then.' And, binding another silk handkerchief around my eyes, he led me along. Instead of my mule, a carriage stood near the horse-block. "'Get in,' says he, holding the pistol to my ears by way of an argument. I got in. He jumped up on the driver's seat, and we drove like the wind. In another direction from that in which we come, in course, for there was no carriage road there. The carriage whirled along at such a rate it made me quite giddy. At last it stopped again. The man in the mask got down and opened the door. "'Where are you taking me?' says I. "'Be quiet,' said he, or—' and with that he put the pistol to my cheek ordered me to get out take the bandage from my eyes and walk before him i did so and saw dimly that we were in a part of the country that i was never at before we were in a dark road through a thick forest on the left side of the road in a clearing stood an old house a dim light was burning in a lower window go on in there said the willain putting the pistol to the back of my head as the door stood ajar i went in to a narrow dark passage the man all the time at my back he opened a door on the left side, and made me go into a dark room. Just then the unfortunate child that had been moving restlessly began to wail. Well, it might, poor starved thing. What's that? says the miscreant under his breath, and stopped short. It ain't nothing, sir, says I, and hush to the baby. But the poor little wretch raised a squall. What is the meaning of this? said he. Where did that child come from? Why the demon don't you speak? And with that he seized me again by the scruff of the neck and shook me. "'Oh, master, for the love of heaven, don't,' says I. "'This is only a poor unfortunate infant, as its parents wanted to get out in the way, and hired me to take care on. And I have had it wrapped up under my shawl all the time, except when I was in your house, when I put it to sleep in the corner.' "'Humph! And you had that child concealed under your shawl when I first stopped you in the woods?' "'In course, master,' says I. "'Whose is it?' "'Master,' says I, "'it's—it's a dead secret, for I hadn't another lie ready.' He broke out into a rude, scornful laugh, and seemed not half to believe me, and yet not to care about questioning me too closely. He made me sit down then in the dark, and went out and turned the key on me. I wet my finger with a paragoric, and put it to the baby's lips to quiet its pains of hunger. Then I heard a whispering in the next room. Now my eyesight never was good, but to make up for it, I believe I had the sharpest ears that ever was, and I don't think anybody could have heard that whispering but me. I saw a little glimmer of light through the chinks that showed me where the door was, and so I creeped up to it, and put my ear to the keyhole. Still they whispered so low, that no ears could have heard them but my sharp ones. The first words I heard good was a grumbling voice, asking, "'How old?' Fifty, more or less, but strong, active, a good nurse, and a very light mulatto,' says my Willen's voice. "'Hum, too old,' says the other. "'But I will throw the child in.' A low, crackling laugh, the only answer— "'You mean that would be only a bother. "'Well, I want to get rid of the pair of them,' said my Willen. "'so name the price you are willing to give.' 
Cap'n, you and me have had too many transactions together to make any flummery about this. You want to get shut of them, pair. I hain't no objections to turning an honest penny. So just make out the papers, bill a sale o' the omen Kate, or whatsoever her name may be, and the child, with any price you please. So it is only a make-believe price, and I'll engage to take her away, and make the most I can of them in the south. That won't be much, seeing it's only an old omen and child. Scarcely a fair profit on the expense of taking her out. Now, as money's no object to you, Cap'n. Very well, have your own way. Only don't let that woman escape in return, for if you do. I understand, Cap'n, but I reckon you needn't threaten, for if you could blow me, why, I would return you the same favor, said the other, raising his voice and laughing aloud. Be quiet, fool, or come away farther, here. And the two willins moved out of even my hearing. I should have been uneasy, master, if it hadn't been the omen they were talking about was named Kate, and that wasn't my name, which were well be known to be Nancy. Presently I heard the black carriage drive away, and almost immediately after the door was unlocked, and a great big black-bearded and black-headed beast of a ruffian came in, and says he, Well, my woman, have you had any supper? No, said I, I hain't, and if I'm to stay here any length of time, I'd be obliged to you to let me have some hot water and milk to make pap for this perishing baby. Follow me, say he. And he took me into the kitchen at the back of the house, where there was a fire in the fireplace and a cupboard with all that I needed. Well, sir, not to tire you, I made a nursing bottle for the baby and fed it. And then I got something for my own supper, or rather breakfast, for it was now near the dawn of day. Well, sir, I thought I would try to get out and look about myself to see what the neighborhood looked like by daylight, but when I tried the door I found myself locked up a close prisoner. I looked at the window and saw nothing but a little backyard, closed in by the woods. I tried to raise the sash, but it was nailed down. The black-headed monster came in just about that minute, and seeing what I was a-doing of, says he, Stop that. What am I stopped here for, says I, a free omen, says I, a vented of going about her own business, says I. But he only laughed a loud, crackling, scornful laugh, and went out, turning the key after him. A little after sunrise, an old, dried-up, spiteful-looking hag of a woman came in and began to get breakfast. What am I kept here for, says I to her. But she took no notice at all, nor could I get so much as a single word out in her. In fact, master, the little omen was deaf and dumb. Well, sir, to be short, I was kept in that place all day long, and when night come I was drove into a shay at the point of the pistol, and rattled along as fast as the horses could gallop over a road as I knew nothing of. We changed horses once or twice, and just about the dawn of day we come to a broad river with a vessel laying to, not far from the shore. As soon as the shay drove down on the sands, the willin, as had run away with me, puts a pipe to his belainous mouth and blows like mad. Somebody else blowed back from the vessel. Then a boat was put off and rowed ashore. I was forced to get into it, and was followed by the willin. We was rowed to the vessel, and I was drove up the ladder onto the decks. And there, master, right afore my own lookin' eyes, me and the baby was traded off to the captain. It was no use for me to splain or spotulate. I wasn't believed. The willin' as had stole me got back into the boat and went ashore, and I saw him get into the shay and drive away. It was no use for me to howl and cry, though I did both for I couldn't even hear myself for the swearing of the captain and the noise of the crew, as they was a gettin' of the wessel under way. Well, sir, we sailed down that river and out to sea. Now, sir, come a strange providence, which the very thoughts of it might convert a heathen. We had been to sea about five days, when a dreadful storm riz. Oh, marster, 
the inky blackness of the sky, the roaring of the wind, the raging of the sea, the leaping of the waves, and the rocking of that vessel, and every once in a while sea and ship all ablaze with the blinding lightning, was a thing to see, not to hear tell of. I tell you, Marster, that it looked like the wrath of God, and then the cursing and swearing and bawling of the captain and the crew, as they were a taken in of sail, was enough to raise one's hair on their head. I hugged the baby to my breast, and went to praying as hard as ever I could pray. Presently I felt an awful shock, as if heaven and earth had come together, and then everybody screaming, She's struck! She's struck! I felt the vessel trembling like a live creature, and the water a-pouring in everywhere. I hugged the babe, and scrambled up the companionway to the deck. It was pitch dark, and I heard every man rushing toward one side of the vessel. A flash of lightning that made everything as bright as day again showed me that they were all taking to the boat. I rushed after, calling to them to save me and the baby, but no one seemed to hear me. They were all too busy trying to save themselves and keep others out of the boat, and cursing and swearing and hollering that there was no more room, that the boat would be swamped, and so on. The end was that all who could crowd into the boat did so, and me and the baby and a poor sailor lad and the black cook were left behind to perish. But, Marster, as it turned out, we as was left to die were the only ones saved. We watched after that boat with longing eyes, though we could only see it when the lightning flashed, and every time we saw it, it was farther off. At last, Marster, a flash of lightning showed us the boat as far off as ever we could see her, capsized and beaten hither and thither by the wild waves. Its crew had perished. Marster, as soon as the sea had swallowed up that wicked captain and crew, the wind died away, the waves fell, and the storm lulled. Just as if it had done what it was sent to do, and was satisfied. The wreck where we poor forlorn ones stood, the wreck that had shivered and trembled with every wave that struck it, until we had feared it would break up every minute, became still and firm on its sandbar, as a house on dry land. Daylight came at last, and a little after sunrise we saw a sail bearing down upon us. We could not signal the sail, but by the mercy of Providence she saw us and lay to, and sent off a boat and picked us up and took us on board, me and the baby and the cook and the sailor lad. It was a foreign vessel, and we could not understand a word they said, nor they us. All we could do was by signs, but they were very good to us, dried our clothes and gave us breakfast, and made us lie down and rest, and then put about and continued their course. The sailor lad, Herbert Grayson, soon found out and told me they were bound for New York. And in fact, Marster, in about ten days we made that port. When the ship anchored below the battery, the officers and passengers made me up a little bundle of clothes and a little purse of money and put me ashore. And there I was in a strange city, so bewildered I didn't know which way to turn. While I was a standing there, in danger of being run over by the omnibuses, the sailor boy came to my side and told me that he and the cook was gwine to engage on board of another American vessel, and asked me what I was gwine to do. I told him how I didn't know nothing at all about sea service, and so I didn't know what I should do. Then he said he'd show me where I could go and stay all night, and so he took me into a little by street, to a poor looking house, where the people took lodgers, and there he left me to go aboard the ship. As he went away, he advised me to take care of my money and try to get a servant's place. Well, Marster, I ain't a gwine to bother you with telling you of how I toiled and struggled along in that great city, first living out as a servant, and afterward renting a room and taking in washing and ironing. 
I, how I toiled and struggled for ten long years, hoping for the time to come when I should be able to return to this neighborhood, where I was known, and expose the evil deeds of them willins, and for this cause I lived on, toiling and struggling, and laying up money penny by penny. Sometimes I was fool enough to tell my story, in the hopes of getting pity and help, but telling my story always made it worse for me. Some thought me crazy, and others thought me deceitful, which is not to be wondered at, for I was a stranger, and my adventures were indeed beyond belief. No one ever helped me but the lad Herbert Grayson. Whenever he came from sea, he sought me out, and made a little present to me or Cap. Cap, Marster, was Capitola, the child. The reason I gave her that name was because on that ring I had drawn from the masked mother's hand were the two names, Eugene Capitola. Well, Marster, the last time Herbert Grayson came home, he gave me five dollars, and that, with what I had saved, was enough to pay my passage to Norfolk. I left my little cap in the care of the people of the house. She was big enough to pay for her keep and work, and I took passage for Norfolk. When I got there I fell ill, spent all my money, and was at last taken to the poorhouse. Six months passed away before I was discharged, and then six months more before I had earned and saved money enough to pay my way on here. I reached here three days ago, and found a wheat field growing where my cottage fire used to burn, and all my old cronies dead, all except old Hat, who has received and given me shelter. Sir, my story is done. Make what you can of it, said the invalid, sinking down in her bed, as if utterly exhausted. Old Hurricane, whose countenance had expressed emotions as powerful as they were various while listening to this tale, now arose, stepped cautiously to the door, drew the bolt, and, coming back, bent his head and asked, "'What more of the child?' "'Cap, sir, I have not heard a word of Cap since I left her to try to find out her friends, but any one interested in her might inquire for her at Mrs. Simmons, laundress, number 8, Rag Alley. You say the names upon that ring were Eugene, Capitola?' "'Yes, sir, they were.' "'Have you that ring about you?' "'No, Marster. I thought it was best, in case of accidents, to leave it with the child. "'Have you told her any part of this strange history?' "'No, Marster, nor hinted at it. She was too young for such a confidence.' "'You were right. Had she any mark about her person by which she could be identified?' "'Yes, Marster, a very strange one. In the middle of her left palm was a perfect image of a crimson hand, about half an inch in length. There was also another—' Herbert Grayson, to please me, marked upon her forearm, in India ink, her name and birthday, Capitola, October 31st, 1832. Right. Now tell me, my good soul, do you know, from what you were able to observe, what house that was where Capitola was born? I am on my oath. No, sir, I do not know, but— You suspect? The woman nodded. It was, said old Hurricane, stooping and whispering a name that was heard by no one but the sick woman. She nodded again, with a look of intense meaning. "'Does your old hostess here, Hat, know or suspect anything of this story?' inquired Major Warfield. "'Not a word. No soul but yourself has heard it. That is right. Still be discreet. And if you would have the wicked punished and the innocent protected, be silent and wary. Have no anxiety about the girl. What man can do for her will I do, and quickly. And now, good creature, day is actually dawning. You must seek repose.' and I must call the parson in and return home. I will send Mrs. Condiment over with food, wine, medicine, clothing, and every comfort that your condition requires, said old Hurricane, rising and calling in the clergyman, with whom he soon after left the hut for home. 
They reached Hurricane Hall in time for an early breakfast, which the astonished housekeeper had prepared, and for which their night's adventures had certainly given them a good appetite. Major Warfield kept his word, and as soon as breakfast was over, he dispatched Mrs. Condiment with a carriage filled with provisions for the sick woman. But they were not needed. In a couple of hours the housekeeper returned with the intelligence that the old nurse was dead. The false strength of mental excitement that had enabled her to tell so long and dreadful a tale had been the last flaring up of the flame of life that almost immediately went out. "'I am not sorry upon the whole, for now I shall have the game in my own hands,' muttered old Hurricane to himself. "'Ah, Gabriel Lenore, better you had cast yourself down from the highest rock of this range, and been dashed to pieces below, than have thus fallen into my power.'" End of chapter 2